Welcome to Freedom's Call. And now, here's your host, Brett Sterley. Hey, welcome back. As promised, we are joined by Green County Clerk Shane Schuller. Uh, Shane has served in various uh, elected and appointed positions throughout Missouri and national government. Welcome, Shane Schuller, to Freedom's Call. We appreciate you being on with us today. Hey, thanks, Brett. I really appreciate the opportunity to be on with you today. So, what are some of the main responsibilities of a county clerk? You know, a county clerk was designed to be, in my opinion, the administrative face of the county. And so when you think about elections, that's an administrative task that the county clerk performs. Um, If you think about voter registration, again, we're administering the voter registration records on behalf of the county um, and those records we use when we administer the election. We do tax administration. So we, we work between the assessor's office and the collector's office. So after the assessor has gone through and determined the valuation of your real estate property and your personal property. All those records are then given to our office. And then we serve as a secretary to the board of equalization. So if a property owner says, you know what, I don't agree with that property value. They may think it's too high. They may think it's too low. They can then come and appeal that to the board of equalization. So in that role, we serve as secretary. After all those valuations are determined as fair or not fair, and the Board of Equalization makes determination of what that property value should be, we then take those books, we then take those values, and then we distribute them to every political subdivision in the county, and they take their property um, tax base value, and then that's what they set their tax levies on. And so your school districts, your cities, your fire protection districts, water protection districts, um, any political subdivision, including the county, then sets their tax levy. And then once that is set, and we do that in coordination with the state auditor's office and our auditor here locally, we then send all of those set values with the name of the taxpayers to the collector. And then they go and collect the taxes um, at the end of the year um, from the taxpayer. So there's another administrative duty that we perform. We also um, do um, liquor license um, in this office. And I always joke, I'm a teetotaling Baptist, but my name's on every liquor establishment in the county. So <laughs> that's always an interesting thing. And so anyway, and then um, we um, also oversee the um, auctioneer licensing. Uh, so occasionally I have someone who comes in and wants to um, do an auction, you know, like over the course of a weekend or sometimes for the year, just depends. We, we issue those um, in conjunction with the collector's office. And then we also oversee record retention. And so that's on behalf of this office and the county commission. So any official records adoption of the county commission, we are tasked with retaining and keeping those records. And then we also respond to any public record requests on behalf of this office or the county commission office. And so that's another duty that uh, we perform that's administrative in nature. And then we also um, oversee the payroll and the retirement benefits for the county. So I always tell people that, you know, publicly, most folks know it's for elections, but if you work for the county, you want to make sure they get their paycheck every other week. Absolutely. <laughs> so important duty that we perform. Um, and then uh, um, finally, we also oversee the issuance of the notary um, license. So after they go through the paperwork with the Secretary of State's office, they then come and finish that uh, paperwork here. Um, in our office. And so, like I said, it is a um, lot of different duties that we oversee. And then third-class counties, they even do the budget 
they do the accounts payable or accounts receivable um, on behalf of the county. And so they do a number of functions, even in addition to what a first class county clerk does. Wow. That, you know, I did not realize that all that was under the umbrella of the county clerk. I mean, that's, that's, uh, I mean, that's pretty, that's pretty amazing. What um, takes, takes a lot of, a lot of expertise and a lot of varied staff. You, you have a lot of plates in the air it all does. the time. Yeah. Huh. Yes. Interesting. So, you know, we talked, we talked a, a little bit, uh, kind of touched on election and integrity a, l- a little bit earlier and, and how it is probably a bigger focus now than any time I can re- really remember. And, you know, I, the, the little bumper sticker phrase is the elections should make it easy to vote and hard to cheat. Uh, so what, what are what are some of the policies and, and measures that help uh, achieve this goal of a, of of election integrity? Well, and that's one of the things, you know, until you actually administer an election um, up close, because I um, had not served as an election judge previous um, to my time becoming a county clerk. Um, but you really develop an appreciation for something that we have in our state, and that is um, the duties that we perform for an election, whether it's the testing of the election equipment, which is, you know, within the statute, we have to test the election equipment before um, it's certified to go on election day. Um but those teams that test the equipment, the people that you meet when you see them in a pair there, when you go to check in the vote at the day of the election at the polling location, those are all bipartisan teams. And uh, it was interesting. I had an opportunity um, to go to a neighboring state and observe an election because this is when we were in the process of purchasing new election equipment. And they were having a special election. And so I wanted to go see how the election equipment on election day. And I was really surprised. They did not have bipartisan teams. And then this is the part that uh, probably was the most striking was at the end of the night, one person left for the ballots to go back to the courthouse. And I was like, wow, wow. (laughs) (laughs) So, so, you know, I think we take for granted in our state some of the um, uh, measures that have been put in place to ensure accountability and make sure that um, every part of the process in terms of the chain of custody procedures, you know, how the ballots are handed to the voter, you know, even when we hand a ballot to the voter, both election judges, bipartisan team is initialing that ballot um, at the top of the ballot to make sure that we know that ballot was issued by an election judge team. So if there are extra ballots found at the end of the election night and either one, they don't have the right initials or two, they don't have any initials, then we know that those ballots most likely were not issued by the election judge team there at that polling location. And so we have a lot of things that are within our statutes that help protect the integrity of the election. And, you know, of course, familiarity is always incredibly important in terms of any job you do. And one of the things I really love is I'm starting my eighth year is you really begin to see how the whole process you know, really comes together from the very beginning, 10 weeks out when you begin to administer that election until the 12th week out um, or or 12 weeks after that 10-week period is when you're certifying the election. You have 10 weeks to prepare for the election, then two weeks to certify. And you really see all of those processes coming together that are within our state statutes and within the code of regulations that we follow to make sure that when we certify an election with that bipartisan verification team, that we know that we are certifying the actual outcome as the voters voted on the day of the election. And the thing I love is, you know, verification team before they certify can say, I've got a question. I'm not sure that I am completely confident that this is, you know, 
the outcome I'm certified is the result. So they can literally stop the process. They can be there for the entire process, observe it, watch it, participate in it. And so that's, you know, something that I really have come to appreciate um, for our state. And just, you know, every year, you know, you continue to look at that and say, um, you know, what can we do to continue to improve? And so, for example, in our office, you know, we're working since the um, 2020 election to really um, look at our chain of custody documentation and how do we do that? How can we make it even better? And one of the one of the things is, is, I guess, controversial. I'm not exactly sure. Well, I know why, but I don't know why. But we'll talk about it. Voter ID and a lot of, yes. you know, a lot of you know, I kind of find it ironic that, that, you know, many of the same people who are demanding that you have a, a vaccine passport to to walk across the street or to eat into in a restaurant, you know, oppose a voter ID. It, it, is there is there any, I guess, good reason for that? You know, I, I try to, because I carried the voter ID bill when I was in the legislature, and I want to believe, and, and I do believe, there's some people that genuinely are concerned. There are individuals who don't have voter ID who would be denied the right to vote. I don't deny that sincerity on their behalf. I think where I come to disagree with them is that for that, individual, there's almost always an opportunity to help get that person a non-driver's license at some point between, you know, the time period of, you know, when they register and before they go to vote or once the law is implemented before they go to vote the next time. And so that's probably where I diverge. Like, I, I appreciate and respect that. I want anyone who is an eligible voter to have that right to vote. But I think the other area where we disagree is that, you know, I think um, you know, I mentioned the Pendergast election, you know, that was scandal ridden back in the, in the mid 1930s. Mm-hmm. And if you go back and look at um, our, our state law at the time, um, my understanding is about two years after that election is when voter registration was instituted in our state. Well, why would we register voters? Because they didn't have a list or record of voters to be able to more easily prevent that fraud when voters were coming to vote. Um, during that particular election. And so at that time, you see voter registration instituted. And, you know, as we continue to go forward, we know people have, you know, um, um, tried to. Now, have you make, found any instances of voter fraud since becoming a county clerk? I, my first election as a county clerk, I had a person who, this was 2015 April, who voted twice, once in the county, once in the city. They wanted to vote on the issue. And matter of fact, I believe this person probably came in the city and only voted on that issue because they didn't realize they couldn't vote for in the county. But at the end of the day, this person voted twice. And fortunately, we were able to, you know, um, figure out that it happened. The sheriff's office did an investigation. They turned the information to the prosecutor and the person was prosecuted. So there's just one small instance that we know mm-hmm. happens. Well, with voter ID, if you think about a, a federal, a photo ID issued by state or federal, um, entity, that is a much harder form of documentation to create a fraudulent document for than a utility statement or a bank statement or anything like that. And that's what I try to remind people is that it, we're not trying to prevent people from voting. Rather, I believe that we should protect your ballot when you go to vote, no different than you want to protect your money when you go to put it in the bank. That ballot is almost, in my opinion, sacred. And no one should be able to 
pose as somebody else or be able to add additional ballot that takes away the value of your ballot when you put it in to have it counted. And so that's the framework from which I look at it from. And I think we have to continue to push for, you know, a strong voter ID bill. And I realize there are people that I work with as candidate clerk that disagree with me, but that's okay. We got to be able to have a disagreement and, and still be able to work together in terms of the accountability of the election. Yeah, we always used to be able to have these kind of discussions about in differences of opinion. And but, uh, you know, that seems to be incre- increasingly rare. And then whenever you, you especially when you bring up like voter ID, you know, they're just like, oh, you just want to dis- disenfranchise voters and you don't like minorities or this group or that group or anything. And I'm just like, you, you know, to me, to me, that's just insulting that you're telling somebody that they're incapable of doing something for themselves to get an ID to to do something as important as a as important as voting. And I mean, all the polling that I've seen, I mean, it looks like it's north of 80% support for voter IDs in most areas and especially in the inner cities, because they, they understand that, no, I want to make sure when I, you know, I leave, Mm -hmm. if we have Sunday voting, if I leave church on Sunday, I'm going to go vote. I want to make sure that it's counted. I mean, that just seems, I mean, it seems common sense to me, but. We want to disenfranchise cheating and that's the thing. That we yeah, abs- abs- absolutely. Excellent segue, by the way. So, uh, you know, there's in, in the news, there's a there's a proposal up in New York City that they're to where they're wanting to allow um, around 800,000 non-citizens to vote in New York City elections. And if if that's done, if you have any non-citizen or an illegal vote cast, does that not disenfranchise the vote from a legal voter? Well, I mean, certainly in California, they've done this at the local level. And as far as I know, it's been upheld in the courts in terms of a local entity can make the decision. However, I firmly believe that citizenship is something that means something. Mm-hmm. And so, in my opinion, if you begin to open that door, a lot of people vote local elections, we know what the next step is. Well, they live here. They ought to have the right to be able to vote. And, of course, you, we've seen the entanglement of benefits being given to non-citizens, et cetera. Well, at the end of the day, I believe citizenship means something. And if you take away the right to vote as part of being a citizen, I really have a hard time wrapping my mind around what the value of our citizenship is. That ought to be something that is always sacred that we protect. And we say, if you want to be a U.S. citizen, then apply for citizenship. And of course, we don't want to go down that whole path because we know we have issues in terms of that pathway for citizenships. And I think there are things that can be done to improve that, to allow people a lawful path to become a citizen. But at the end of the day, that should not be an excuse to take away that as a, as a citizen, you have the right to vote. But if you're not a citizen, you should not have the right to vote. And I think it's very unfortunate that that path has been opened up in local elections. And I would vigorously oppose it here in our state. My belief is they want to do it to blatantly, you know, steal elections and to cheat, manipulate, manipulate elections. And, you know, that's that's something that every that every citizen should be should should oppose. I think that if I go to another country, I should have to apply for citizenship and follow the path of citizenship there by the laws of that nation before I get the right to be able to participate in the election. 
it seems no yeah. different. You know, seems seems reasonable. It really does. It really <laughs> does. And, and what's really neat is when you meet someone who has attained citizenship and how much it means for them to be able to cast that vote. I mean, that, that's a powerful moment. But as you and I both know, all too often we've been given something that we didn't necessarily earn or try um, to earn. It, ne- it usually doesn't mean nearly as much. And it mm-hmm. just cheapens the value of the very institution that I think is, is again, a hallmark of our, our country and, and our nation, which is the right to vote. With that emphasis on, you know, citizenship, you know, let's, let's kind of bring this back to the to the county level. And, you know, I, I imagine that there are several areas to where, you know, the citizens can be involved, um, you know, to help secure help secure our election and help, um, you know, help you you and your staff be be more effective in, in executing elections. It, it kind of seems that, you know, having accurate voter rolls is a great starting point. Is there anything uh, as far as like being uh, a canvasser? Can you explain what a canvasser is and, and, and how a canvasser can help uh, make sure we have accurate uh, voter rolls? Is that something that uh, that that is of value? Well, there is certainly um, and I've been in some meetings where this has been discussed here in the past uh, few months because there is a concern and even as a local election official you know one of the hardest things we have is being able to have the resources to do like a door-to-door canvas Um, we do things through the mail system and through um, a couple other um, opportunities that we have to be able to verify addresses but um, in general being able to actually witness whether someone lives in an actual residence, that's a much harder thing in terms of resources that we have. And so there are some citizens I know who are stepping forward and say, hey, I'm wanting to be part of that. And and what I've told folks is if you find something in terms of you go to a home, you see that there's a registered voter there, that there's been no evidence of that individual um, living in that residence, let us know as a local election official. There's a process in statute where we can um, one, send um, the voter registration card there. If it bounces back, it's undeliverable, then we can put that person on um, as an inactive voter after a period of 30 days if they don't respond to um, information that we send them asking to update their voter registration record. But we can also actually appoint a bipartisan team that can go and um, to that particular residence and location and determine if that individual does indeed live there or not. And so that's another process that we have that we can do. But normally it's based upon um, you've been getting information that someone is not living there or they're voting for their residence, but they're not really at that residence. And so those are examples that I haven't used that during my time as a county clerk, but that is a tool in the statutes that we're given. What about um you know, being being an election judge, what what role do they play, and and how could somebody you know be, become an election judge? Well, as I tell folks, you know, election judges are literally critical to the conduct of every election because clearly, you know, we have um, approximately fifteen um, and a half people because we have one person who works part time here in the office, um, and so during each election. We need people who are part of the Democratic Party, Republican Party. If you're a Libertarian or Constitution Party or Green Party, even an independent, you can serve as election judge. 
but we do at every location are supervisory judges who oversee um, the setup of the election and the breakdown of the election and bring the ballots back the other night. They do have to be one Republican, one Democrat, because those are the two majority parties of our state currently in terms of the election results um, that happen during the um, every four years when we have the governor um, election for governor. So all that to say, I literally go to the center committee for the Republican Party and then Usually once every other year, I'll even go to the Center Committee meeting for the Democratic Party and ask them one of the roles that a Center Committee person has, um, and that's they represent the precinct in which they live, is they're supposed to help um, recruit election judges for their precinct. And then they give those names to the Center Committee chairperson of the party. And then that um, chairperson of the party, during December 10th of every even-numbered year, is supposed to give us a list of twice the number of people that we need to conduct a um, general election two years later. And so, um, unfortunately, and I don't say this critically, that normally doesn't happen. And what I try to tell um, our folks at Service Center Committee is when I have to go to the media and recruit somebody to serve as an election judge, I'm taking it at face value that they are the party to say they're with when they fill out that form. Mm-hmm. I would much rather a Democrat or Republican tell me, yes, this is a Democrat or Republican, because that's when we know we have true bipartisanship that is truly holding our elections accountable um, when we go out on the day of the election. And so it's, you know, as I've watched over the past you know, year and a half here, a lot of it's certainly about our elections. I keep going back to our state statutes have empowered people to be part of the process from the beginning to the end and make sure that the election is conducted fairly and with integrity. And the major piece of that is our election judges. And so we want, you know, people that are competent, that that want to make sure that when that election result is certified, it is the outcome of the voters vote at that polling location on election day. And we can't do that without we the people. And so it literally goes back to the founding of our country, you know, when they put that in their constitution, um, as we talked about, I think maybe before we jumped on on the call here earlier, that's where the fabric of that comes from. And that literally is carried out during each and every election that voters kind of participate in. And it's based upon people being willing to serve during the election. And we do pay. We do compensate that time. Um, but, you know, there are a lot of people I know that are willing to do it, even if they're not paid. And we just appreciate that level of commitment that they have to making sure the election is held and held well. Well, that all just kind of comes back to what the value of citizenship really is. You know, citizenship's not a not a passive activity. You can you can be a citizen of the country, you know, just by sitting on the couch. But you have to practice citizenship and, and getting out. And I know how difficult it is sometimes to get volunteers to do things and even getting people to, to even if they're getting compensated in some way uh, to get people to do things. And so uh, it, it's uh, that's a that's a really a key component. And that's really incumbent upon my, myself and every other citizen you know, to help in this process. There was one other position. I think this is more of a party related position, a, a, a precinct captain. Now, if, if I understand correct, a precinct captain answers to their political party party and is responsible for get out the vote efforts in their in their precinct. Is that accurate? Yeah. And that's what I think often is termed the center committee person is considered a precinct captain. Okay. And so uh, and those are positions that, um, you know, as we get ready to open up 
at the end of February um, through, well, February 22nd through March 29th. People can come and publicly file to run for office here in Greene County, each county across the state. But they can also file to run for the central committee of the party of their preference. And so each um, central committee is represented by one male and one female. And those are what are essentially considered the captains. So that one, as I mentioned, they recruit election judges, but two, they're there on behalf of their party to make sure the candidates are running on their ticket, um, that the voters that are within that precinct know about who those candidates are. And like you said, help organize um, on behalf of the party, be able to get that message out to the voters. Kind of the bottom line is there's there's plenty of work to be done. Um, we just need to have enough people to actually do the work. And so like with with canvas, canvassing or election judges, is that something that's coordinated through your office? We uh, definitely. Um, now, ideally, like I said, we're going to get our election judges from our um, chairman of each political party. But certainly we've got an application or website people can apply because if you're independent, you can be an election judge, for example. But uh, we ask them to list their party preference um, on the application um, and canvassers. Um, certainly, like I said, if they're aware of something that they believe is pointing to someone um, who is, quote, registered, but clearly does not live in the residence, we want to know about that. And to please come to us and visit, about, visit with us about that so that we can definitely take some action to go and see um, if we um, to come to the same conclusion that they did. And so that's extremely important. And, you know, one thing I want to mention, Brett, that is always important to me when I think about, you know, election day and sacrifice that, um, you know, people make serve as election judges. Occasionally I will hear people and sometimes more than occasionally, well, that's just an awfully long day. And I always think, about our men and women who are in harm's way as we're having that conversation, uh-huh. who are literally up before the crack of dawn, and they're literally protecting that right that we have to be able to cast that vote freely. And then I think of countries where people have literally put themselves in harm's way just to go cast that vote or to administer that election. And I think, you know, that's what we need to remember when we think about it. Now, I, admittedly, there's some people who physically can't serve as elected judge. I understand that. And if you're in that situation, I I respect that. I'm not asking to. But if it's because you don't want to, you know, really get up early and spend a long day, to those people, I would say, you know, think about where we started as a nation and where we've come and how you can make a difference. And what I tell people, if you don't want the money, donate it to a church, donate it to a the civic club, find a cause that you care about. And then you not only do a great good by serving on the day of the election, you can do another good with the money that is given to you for serving on that day of the election. That's great advice. And I think a really, a, a really great perspective. And if, if we could all have that uh, perspective of how important citizenship is and, and really a true appreciation of the blessings that we have in our, in our country, I think that this would definitely be a, a much better place. You know, Shane, I really appreciate your, uh, your time here today and uh, educating our listeners and educating me. Um, and uh, I would just challenge everybody that's listening to this that, uh, you know, 
know, get get involved in in your local party, get involved in local elections, and uh, you know, it's 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 up to us. It's up to we the people, as as Shane Shane said. You know, it's up to we the people to secure our elections and make sure that we protect our republic. So, um, thank you very much for being here on Freedom's Call, Shane. I really appreciate it. Right. Thanks, Brett. We really enjoyed it. Uh, I'm Brett Sterling. Thank you for being with us, and we will see you again here next week. Mm-hmm.